I don't know about you, but um, I'll speak for myself. I have, um, I have some very fond memories of the summer of 1998. I don't know if, you, if that sticks out in your brain or not, but for me, the summer of 1998, for a 13-year-old kid who loved baseball and, and loved the St. Louis Cardinals, the, the summer and the fall of Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa hitting home runs day in and day out was about as good as it gets. I mean, it, it was, uh, that, uh, that sticks in my mind, obviously. I, I, can, I can remember getting up in the mornings, and this was before the internet was, I mean, the internet was there, but I was checking the newspaper every morning to see did McGuire hit a home run. And I kind of knew that one because I probably listened to it on the radio, but to see if Sosa did or, or to see if Ken Griffey Jr. did. Um, I, I can remember vividly being at a high school football game in Woodland, that, at Woodland that fall. And the announcer on the loudspeaker was, of course, announcing the football game, but he was giving updates about home runs, too. And I remember he would say, McGuire hit one, and some people would cheer. And then he'd say that Sosa hit one, and the people that didn't know baseball would cheer. And, you know, it, it, <laughs> you caught it. Good. Just a little dig there. But, uh, I, I mean, I just have these vivid memories. I, I, I can remember um, helping my dad work on the roof of our house, and we had the baseball game on when McGuire hit his 61st home run to tie Roger Maris. Like, I remember right where we, what, you know, what part of the roof we were working on. I can remember, remember Jack Buck, looky there, looky there. Like, I just, I, I remember that. I can remember uh, uh, September 8th, 1998. It was a Tuesday night. I remember watching the game on TV when McGuire hit number 62 and broke Roger Maris' record. I'm telling you, like, this stuff <laughs> sticks out. I, I, was, I was loving that summer and that fall. It was so fun for me, and, um, and actually, I was, kinda, I was given a gift later on this book that, again, if you're a Cub fan, you're not going to like it, but this, I mean, this book just encapsulates the season. It's got details. If you wanted to know everything there is to know about the 32nd and 33rd home run, I could tell you right now, because it's, it's in this book. Um, you know, it, it, it chronicles his season. There's detailed statistics in there. I, I, I still enjoy looking through it. I know this record was broken a few years later, but uh, it, man, it doesn't take away from the fun I had that summer, the fun looking through this book. Now, in this book, naturally, it, Mark McGuire is the main focal point. I mean, we would expect that, right? It's, it's a book about him hitting 70 home runs. Now, there's information in here about Sammy Sosa. There's information in here about Ken Griffey Jr. But the details given about those two individuals really are only given to provide context and, and to, to give drama to the story of the summer of 1998. If you want to learn everything there is to know about Sammy Sosa's 1998 season, this isn't the book for you. You know, you'll find some things in here, but, but again, only what pertains to Mark McGuire. And, and the reason I, I bring that up this morning is because I, I think it provides a good framework for us for understanding how the Bible reveals both God and Satan to us. So the Bible, first and foremost, is a book that reveals God to us. It is the Word of God proceeding from God meant to reveal God. That is the Bible. God is the main character. Within the Bible, there are details given about Satan, 
but what we learn is given in the context of God's story. It's given in the context of the character of God and the purposes that God is accomplishing. So, so as we take time this morning to focus on another topic that, that begins in Genesis, we're focusing upon our adversary. We have to realize that the Bible isn't going to answer every single question we have about Satan. It's a book about God, and it doesn't answer every single question we have about God. For Satan, it's really not going to answer every single question that we have. It, 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 it's impossible to construct a complete study of Satan because this isn't a book about him. And so we kind of have to begin this morning by, by just coming from a place of satisfaction regarding the amount of information that God has revealed to us about Satan. It, it, it might not be enough to answer every single question we have. It probably isn't. But it is enough to tell us what we need to know according to God's wisdom and according to his purposes for us. So that's really the foundation from which we're launching into our discussion this morning. So the first thing that we're going to do is look at what we are told about who Satan is and who he isn't. And, you know, normally in this series, we've been starting in Genesis and then launching from there out into the rest of the Bible. We're going to kind of do it a little bit backwards today. We're going to look at what the, what the Bible as a whole tells us about who Satan is and who he isn't. And then we're going to go back to Genesis in order to look at Satan's tactics and his strategies that he uses. So I hope we're all right with doing that. If you're not, I'm doing it anyway, so you're just going to have to deal with it. But uh, when we look at Scripture, the first thing we know uh, from the Bible is that God and Satan are not equals. They are not equals. And in, in popular culture, it might be presented that way. And even sometimes in religious thought and, and teaching, God and Satan are, are locked in this eternal struggle between good and evil. But it's just not the case um, Mormonism, for example, would, would teach that Jesus and Satan are brothers, that Jesus is the firstborn and Satan is the secondborn. Um, and it's just one of the reasons I would say that we can't think of Mormonism as a branch of Christianity because it's not. It's teaching things that are not in Scripture. But, uh, but, but, it, but it can be taught that, that God and Satan are, are equals or at least close to equals and that that, uh, you know, God and good's going to win out in the end, but only after this long, arduous battle between them. It just isn't the case. That, that, that is not what is presented to us in the Bible. There's absolutely no comparison between God and Satan. Um, and numerous passages in the Bible proclaim the unparalleled power of God. So, so just to give you a few, Jeremiah 10.6, we read that there is none like you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in might. There's none like him. Uh, in Second Samuel chapter 7, David says, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there's none like you, and there is no God besides you. In Isaiah 46, God himself says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. So the Bible's quite clear. God and Satan are not equals. There is none like God. And so what that means practically 
is that Satan does not possess the characteristics only attributed to God. So, for example, regarding power, God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Satan isn't, not even close. Uh, Regarding presence, God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere all the time. Satan is not. Satan's not in this building this morning. And if he is, he's not anywhere else in the world. He is not omnipresent. Now, we'll talk about demons a little bit later, but Satan himself is not omnipresent. Uh, Regarding knowledge, God is omniscient, all-knowing. God knows our thoughts. God knows our feelings. God knows our desires. He knows everything. Satan does not, does not know our thoughts, does not know our feelings, does not know our desires. He's not omniscient. So just kind of one thing to keep in mind there. And and that's not to ignore or deny the power and influence that Satan does have. And and we'll get into some of that. but, But we do have to start by recognizing that God is God and Satan is not. In every sense of that phrase, Satan is not God's equal. He is a created being. We see that in Scripture. There's, there's two passages we're going to look at, one in Isaiah and one in Ezekiel. Um, and, you know, as can be the case when, when reading the prophetic books of the Bible— it can sometimes be difficult to pinpoint whether the prophecy being given pertains to something that already took place or or something that would take place very soon or something that's going to take place in the distant future Um, or our favorite option from when we were in school, D, all the above, right? And I think more often than not, that is the, the right answer when it comes to many prophecies, D, all the above. So, so the two passages that we're going to read, uh, they were spoken to earthly historical figures. Eze- uh, Isaiah chapter 14 refers to the king of Babylon. Ezekiel chapter 28 refers to the king of Tyre. But it was not uncommon for prophetic messages, and not just in the Bible, but, but generally in that time in history, to use one person or one figure to represent another, to speak specifically to one person, but also be speaking about another person that would come or that was in the past. And so, so uh, many Bible scholars believe that these two passages, although spoken about the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre, are also meant to give us background information about Satan. And I think you'll see why as we read through this. Um, So let's just start Isaiah chapter uh, 14, and I'll start here in verse uh, 12. He writes, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. And that's where the name Lucifer comes from right there. Day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And then also in Ezekiel chapter 28, if you'd like to follow along, starting in verse 12. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, 
full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and grafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. So in reading those passages, I think we can see why many believe this refers to Satan, talking about being in Eden, for example. I mean, the king of Tyre was not in Eden, obviously, so there's lots of other things there. Uh, uh, But what we see then, if, if that is so, that these two passages are talking about Satan, then we are given a lot of background information there. Um, Satan was created by God, as we saw in Ezekiel chapter 28. But he wasn't created as an evil being. Um, In fact, he was created as a beautiful, wise guardian cherub on the holy mountain of God. It's quite the picture being painted for us. Um, The impression we're given is that, that, that his position was one of power and splendor. And in fact, it seems that the high position wasn't quite high enough. And so Satan turned prideful and and he became power hungry. Um, He attempted to set himself up on a throne and and make himself like the most high God, which we already read there is none like God, but he attempted to anyway. But because he's not equal to God, uh, as we'd already stated, it it was a futile power grab and, and, you know, it led to him being cast off, cast out from the mountain of God. And there's lots of parallels here. Excuse me, there's parallels with Adam and Eve grasping for power in the Garden of Eden, grasping for control and being cast out as a result. So upon being cast out from the mountain of God, that wasn't the end for Satan. It wasn't the end. He didn't crawl into a corner. He didn't pout. Instead, he set himself up as the adversary of both God and mankind. Um, And that's what the name Satan actually means. Satan means adversary. Um, So so when we call him that name, that's how we're referring to him. But it's not just Satan himself who opposes God and God's people. As I said, uh, Revelation chapter 12, it alludes to a third of the angels coming to Satan's cause, being cast out of heaven with him. and it's perhaps fitting that, that uh, when Jesus, when the Son of God, walked on the earth, we saw some clear pictures of Satan's opposition, of, of him being an adversary. Um, 
So in Matthew chapter 16, Peter had the unfortunate experience of having Jesus refer to him as Satan. And Jesus only did so because Peter was refusing to accept the fact that Jesus would suffer and die. Uh, Peter was opposing God's work. He was acting like an adversary and so was rightly referred to as Satan. Um, Acts chapter 13, there was a, a magician named Elimus who worked, uh, who opposed the work of Barnabas and Paul. Uh, and then Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he turns to Elimus and, and called him a son of the devil, an enemy of righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. First um, Peter chapter 5, Peter deliberately refers to the devil as our adversary. Second um, Corinthians 11, Paul spoke of the serpent who deceived Eve and led her astray. It's a picture of an adversary. So, so the Bible is clear in its presentation of Satan, not just as someone who is evil and opposed to God, but someone who is opposed to God's people as well. And, and by extension, that description applies to, to those fallen angels, again, generally referred to as demons, um, who rallied to Satan's cause. So it's unquestionable that, uh, that spiritual warfare is real. And, and you know, as, we, as we heard already in Ephesians chapter 6, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is against our adversary, the, the spiritual forces of evil around us. And it, and it might often be a physically unseen battle, but, but it carries very real consequences with it. So, so that being said, I think the last thing we have to know about Satan this morning is, is that he is not the victor in that battle. It is a battle and it is raging, but Satan is not the victor. The outcome is already secured. Um, Colossians 2 says Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That has happened. Um, in Revelation chapter 12, we see that Satan was defeated upon his initial rebellion. We see that Satan continues to be defeated by those who have authority over Jesus. And then in Revelation chapter 20, Satan is finally and ultimately defeated, sentenced to um, eternity in the lake of fire. So Satan is not the victor. He's not the victor. Doesn't mean he's going down peacefully. He's not but he's not the victor. There's no chance of him being victorious over God or God's people. So that's the identity of Satan as described in the Bible. And again, we may have a lot of questions that aren't addressed, but we're given enough. We're given enough information to discern the things that we just talked about, and it, it's enough according to God's wisdom for us. So now we'll go to Genesis and, and turn our attention to the tactics and strategies that uh, are employed by our adversary. In the very first opposition against mankind, what we're going to see is that Satan employs three main strategies. And, and I would say these are the same three that he continued to use throughout history and still, still uses today. So, so Genesis chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, the reason I want to focus on these three strategies of Satan is because deception and darkness are required in order for them to have any power. When these are brought into the light and when they are compared to the truth, they lose all power over us. So that's why we do this this morning. We're going to shine the light of truth on these in order to um, take the power away from them. So, so the first weapon that we see, in, or first strategy, and we'll go in order what we see here in Genesis 3. The first thing that Satan uses is slander. Slander. In verse 1, he, he immediately defamed God by falsely quoting him. Right, but so by, by, if we go back to Genesis 2, 16 and 17, we would see that God clearly told Adam that he could eat from any tree in the garden except for one. He's got the entire garden except for this one tree. That is an incredibly generous picture of God, I think, that you can eat from any tree in the garden except for this one. The whole thing was available to him. But compare that with the slanderous picture that Satan painted of God. He accused God of not allowing them to eat from any of the trees. I mean, that's a very different picture, right? That's a picture of an incredibly stingy God. I'm going to make this awesome garden for you with all these trees, all this fruit, and you can't eat from any of them. He's slandering God. He's stating that God is something that he is not. And, you know, Satan might be subtly slandering God here. He's not coming out and saying that's what he's doing, but that's what he's doing. And, and that slander, that strategy of Satan, gets spewed out on mankind as well. Gets spewed out on God's people especially as well. And I think the perfect example of that is in the book of Job. So in Job chapter 1, God refers to Job as blameless and upright. Those are God's words, so we know it's true. However, Satan slanders Job by saying, well, you know, Job, he, he, only, he only fears you, God, because of everything that you've given him, because of all the blessings. I mean, he's slandering Job, right, to God's face. And then shortly thereafter, in Genesis 2, God again states that Job is blameless and upright, and again, Satan says, ah, he only fears you because he's got his health, God. Satan is slandering Job twice. And, and his attempts at slandering God, slandering us, uh, they continue to this day. It's a strategy he still uses. There's all kinds of slanderous messages out there pertaining to God's identity and pertaining to our identity as his sons and daughters. And as I said earlier, that slander has to be combated with truth. When we shine the light of truth on it, the power goes away. If we want to know the truth about who God is, then we can look in the word of truth. If we want to know the truth about who we are, especially who we are in Christ, we can look in the word 
of truth. I just wonder, you know, had, had Eve referred back to the truth about God, she could have stopped Satan right in his tracks. If Eve said, no, this is what God rightly said, it would, have, it would have removed the power of that slander. But instead, she actually responded to Satan by giving her own opinion of who God is. Did you notice she misquoted God? You can argue that she's slandering God too because she said that God said they couldn't even touch that tree in the middle of the garden. And we have no record of God ever saying that. So even Eve falls into the slander of God in this picture. So in order to combat that slander of Satan, we've got to be grounded in the truth. So we see Satan slander. The next thing that, that we see him do is just flat-out lie. Flat-out lied to her. In verse 4, Satan claimed that they would not die from eating the fruit. Well, I mean, what did God say? In chapter 2, verse 17, he said, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What does Satan say? You will not surely die. I mean, it doesn't get more blatant than that, right? Same wording, even. You shall surely die, you shall not surely die. I think it shows us that Satan's not afraid to lie right to our face. He's been doing it from the beginning, we think for a moment that we can trust him, uh, we're, we're dead wrong. He will lie right to us. Jesus said in John 8, there's no truth in Satan. No truth. He says he's a liar. He's the father of lies. Uh, Acts chapter 5, when, when Ananias and Sapphira sold a field and then they gave some of the money to the church, but they lied about how much they had sold the field for and said they gave all of the money to the church. Peter's words there were, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan filled your heart and caused the lying. I mean, he's connecting those two directly. Satan's a liar. I mean, I mean and what's the best way to contradict lies? To stand on the truth, right? Stand on the truth. We must immerse ourselves in the truth. We've got to be people who speak truth. Uh, if we don't, I think we'll find ourselves in the same place um, as those that Jesus was talking to in John chapter 8. He accused the Jews who were opposing him of being children of their father, the devil. I mean, that, that's kind of a, kind of sounds like a harsh statement, right? And they really didn't enjoy it. But that's what Jesus said. You know, you are children of your father, the devil. When we, when we talk or when we live deceitfully, we act like Satan is our father, not God. Satan's the father of lies. So if we're acting according to that, we're acting as if he's our father. I, you know, it's not, I think it's not a coincidence that at the beginning of that whole discussion, Jesus told them, he told the Jews that the truth would set them free. He said the truth will set them free. Satan seeks to keep us in bondage through his lies God sets us free with the truth. Again, if we want to combat the lies of Satan, just like the slander of Satan, we have to be grounded in the truth. So we see slandering, we see lying, and then the last one for this morning, verse 5, we see Satan's a tempter. He, he takes something that God said would lead to pain, 
and suffering, and, and he attempts to make it look desirable and even necessary for them. I mean, Satan said they would be like God if they ate the fruit. It's too bad they forgot they were already like God. They were created in God's image. They're more like God than Satan is, I think you could argue. And yet, the serpent convinced them, he tempted them in such a way that what they needed was something separate from God. What they needed was something separate from God's purposes for them. And, and I would say that it's no different than what Satan sought to do with Jesus when he was tempting Jesus. In Matthew 4, three times Satan tempts Jesus to do something separate from God. And uh, Jesus was ready for the challenge, and, and if we've heard that story before, we know that Jesus three times quoted scripture, quoted truth, right, in the face of Satan's temptations. But it wasn't just that he quoted any old scripture. He quoted passages that, that returned the focus back to God. Satan was trying to get him to bypass God. Jesus went back to God, right? I mean, he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Can you hear it? Like Satan, I'm not going this way. I'm staying with God. He said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan said, just, you know, jump off the, jump off the roof of the temple and you will be saved. Je you know, Satan was saying, Jesus, focus on yourself. Jesus was saying, no, let's put the focus back on God. Don't put God to the test. And then finally, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan was saying, worship me. You know, he's putting the focus on, on Satan. Jesus said, no, worship God. He took the focus back to God every single time. I think Satan continues to, I don't think, I know we continue to be tempted today. Um, I don't have to go into detail probably to convince us of that. Um, he takes things and he tries to get us to rationalize and, and justify and defend until we're convinced that the things God gives us aren't enough for us. Um, we're led to believe that we have to go outside of God's will in order to find true contentment or fulfillment or joy. And, and in a couple weeks, we're gonna, we're gonna take a more in-depth look at temptation specifically, but, but again, one last time, just like slander, just like lying, to combat the temptation of Satan, we need to be grounded in the truth. I mean, we're catching that theme, right? When we shine the truth on these tactics, these strategies of Satan, the power disappears. And Jesus came, uh, he, he said that he came to, uh, to give us life, that we might have it to the full. Um, the most fulfilling life possible is found in Christ and living according to his leading in our lives. And I think the more we recognize that truth, the more we walk in that truth, the quicker we'll recognize the, the slandering, the lying, the, the temptations, that Satan throws at us. He, he's a real adversary. Satan is a real adversary. That's why he's called Satan. We are in a real battle. He fights with real tactics that have real consequences in our lives. But I want to end this morning with just one more piece of truth that I think is great news for us. And, and I thought maybe I could channel my inner uh, Franklin Roosevelt by saying the only thing we have to fear is 
nothing. I know that's not how he said it, but the only thing we have to fear is nothing. And we have nothing to fear. Satan has been disarmed by Jesus. His ultimate, Satan's ultimate destination is beachside property at the lake of fire. I mean, that, that's the Aaron, New Aaron translation, but that, I mean, essentially that, that is Satan's destination, the lake of fire for eternity. Nothing can, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that, that is the truth of the matter. And, you know, we live in a time, and I don't know how this time compares to other times in history, but, but I know in our time, there's lots of books and videos and websites that are, that are overly obsessed with Satan and the demonic. And, and I think sometimes those, those things can make a person so preoccupied about, uh, occupied with the spiritual forces of evil that that we can lose sight of God's love and God's truth and God's promise that he has been and will continue to be victorious over Satan. And God has chosen to reveal himself in, in this book that he's given to us, and, and he tells us what we need to know regarding our adversary. And I would say uh, it's not our purpose to attempt to find out more and more and, and, and become experts on Satan. If we're going to be experts, let's be experts on God and who God is and, and how he has revealed himself to us. Our, our, our purpose is to read and understand the truth that has been revealed and then trust. Trust in the God of truth to give us strength in that battle. Uh, trust in the God of power to give us victory in that battle. Um, Satan's defeated. I mean, there's, there's no other good way to say it. Satan is defeated, and we in Christ are more than conquerors through him who loves us. So we learn what we can about who Satan is, who he's not, how he works, but at the end of the day, in Christ, we are more than conquerors. We are victorious along with Christ over Satan. What a, what a great promise that is. What a great promise, and I think what a comforting promise that is for us as well. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's close in prayer this morning, and then we're going we're gonna to close singing about this victory that we've been given in Christ. Father, we give you praise this morning. Thank you that you are who you are, and that Satan is not who you are. And so because of that, God, we are, uh, we are here and in you, uh, we're victorious. And we go through this life from a position of, of victory. Would you, would you give us the wisdom that we need to, to recognize where the spiritual forces of evil are, are at work? God, would your, would your truth sink in us deeper and deeper each day? God, it's, uh, it is a blessing to, to find victory, to be given victory in you. We don't want to take lightly our adversary, but we don't want to take lightly you either.
And so I praise you for that. God, I pray for any of us here that, that, are, that are feeling fear, that are feeling uncertainty regarding forces of evil. God, would you, would you give us comfort through your truth? God, may you bring to mind quickly these true statements about who you are and how you've won over Satan. And God, as we close singing about your victory this morning, we give you praise for it. We worship you for your love, but we worship you as the victor, as the king. And God, it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.